I was always taught to question authority. And that's really helped me in my medical training too. So I think part of why I went to where I went to in, in medicine had to do with the way I grew up in South Africa. Because you sort of knew that the system was rotten. Today's guest, Dr. Frank Lippmann, grew up in apartheid South Africa. His family, though, never accepted any of the things that they were told to do. In fact, his parents were very strong activists against that system. He ended up finding his way into the world of medicine. And uh, when it came time for him to start practicing, actually served in a hospital in Soweto, just outside of South Africa's uh, Johannesburg. Eventually, he really started questioning a lot of what medicine was teaching because he'd been taught to question the system. He'd been taught to question authority by his parents. That led him on a long journey that brought him to the United States, doing stints in the South Bronx in the 80s and the Lower East Side in New York City, all the way really questioning what is it we're doing as doctors and are there better ways? Should we be looking at other traditions to bring into the way that we practice medicine? And that led him on a, on a long journey, which started having him integrate all sorts of things that he had seen along the way and to create really his own approach to the practice of medicine and uh, eventually launching a super successful wellness center in New York City. He's become a multi-time author and kind of a revolutionary and an activist now in the space of what it means to be well, what it means to practice medicine in the United States and beyond. Really love this conversation that traced his journey, his roots through South Africa and, and his experiences that really formed him and his lens on modern medicine. We also go into some of the big, big discoveries, the really big curiosities, the, the sort of the pushing the envelope side of medicine today and, and where he thinks it's going. So excited to share this conversation with you. I'm Jonathan Fields, and this is Good Life Project. 
I've known a number of people who've had to literally scramble to figure out how to advocate for their kids when the system seemed to just make it so hard to get the support that they need and deserve. So if you're a parent navigating this world or even just wondering if it's right for your family, I encourage you to give Understood Explains a listen. Search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. It's like having a roadmap for a journey you didn't expect, making it a little less daunting. Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject, or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. So good to be hanging out with you. I was just trying to remember, we've known each other for, I don't know, what, 10 years, dozen years? No, like no this more one. than 10 years. That's probably closer to 20 years. Yeah. yeah, I think you may be right. When you first started your studio downtown. 2001. Yoga, so what, Sonic Yoga? Yeah, was yeah. It? yeah, 2001, yeah. Yeah, 15 years. That's amazing. Yeah. Man, if you look at the state of how things have changed and in your world, in the world, it's pretty profound. And then on the other hand, so much has stayed the same. So as we sit here... I want to talk about a lot, about who you are and what your work is. You know, um, you run this really tremendous. Did you call it a medical center? Uh, well, a wellness center. Wellness center, yeah, in New York City, <laughs> but not what most people would think of traditionally. And, and I want to deconstruct that a little bit, but I want to take sure. a step back in time. Okay. As many of you can, our listeners will hear um, that you can tell right away you're probably not from New York City or Brooklyn or the Come Bronx. Come on, I've been here. I'm, New, I'm a New Yorker. I've been here for 32 years. Right. You've actually so, been in the city longer than me. So, <laughs> You grew up under, under apartheid, which was not just, I mean, there was literally, you know, blacks lived in one place. Yep. You know, there was a complete separation illegally. Yep. But it sounds like also from what I know of you, you're, you, you grew up in a family that didn't quite accept that. Yeah, so I was, in a way, a little bit unusual. I, I, I grew up in a very left-wing family, which was a, not that unusual, but fairly unusual for South Africa. Both my parents were actually members of the Communist Party before it got banned in South Africa. So they were part of the Mandela and, and his group. They were all friendly. And in fact, most of their friends actually got jailed or or left South Africa when Mandela was jailed, but they stayed on. And um, so I grew up in an, in an unusual family. And, you know, I didn't really appreciate it that much at the time. I didn't really know any different. Mm. But now, you know, when I look back as I got older, it was interesting. Yeah. Were, were, um, were your friends, I mean, were sort of the social group at your level? part of that same group of, of sort of more activists, more... No, 
No. No. So my parents' friends were, yeah. but the, my school friends were not. So I was a little bit, so that's why it was a little bit hard for me because yeah. I was sort of a little, little bit odd. My family was a little bit odd for those times. But they had a community. And as I got to college, it got easier because at college there was a big activist movement. So those, you know, so you, you, you find your tribe. Right. So it was easier at college to find people, you know, people my age who were, uh, you know, more active in the anti-apartheid movement. In fact, a lot of the students at at my at, at Vatvaisland University were pretty uh, active in the anti-apartheid movement. So you know, I think um, when I was smaller, it was harder. But as, as you know, when I was eighteen, going to college, you know, the majority of us were, or a lot of us were. Yeah. When when was this in the context? Um, I'm trying to remember when Mandela was actually jailed. So he no he was jailed in um, sixty or f- uh, so he was in jail all the time. So he was just this figurehead for us. We weren't allowed to read anything about him, although we had some books at home that had been brought in from overseas. So he, he we just knew about this guy in jail, but we didn't really know that much about him. Um, and he only got released in 90-something, so I'd right. left already. I'd, I never believed that change would come. Mm. So there's hope for America, too, <laughs> with this Trump. <laughs> yeah, I mean, looking back at what happened there, it, it was it, it, it's so interesting because growing up here, I had I didn't study it. I had no exposure to it. I didn't know what was going on. And... I first learned who Mandela was in a really bizarre way. There was a sort of, um, um, there was a band called The Specials. Oh, yes. And Free this, right, this Nelson legendary Mandela. song, Free Absolutely. Nelson Mandela. Yeah, yeah. And I was, I was, it was the strangest thing. Cause I, I was living out in eastern Long Island in the Hamptons one yeah. summer, painting houses for walking around money. And my housemate starts playing this music. I'm like, what is you that? I love that song, yeah. Like this phenomenal yeah. beat. And he's telling me about it. And then I'm like, who's, who's Nelson Mandela? Oh. And the thought to me that somebody in you know, like their early 20s in this country could have no concept of who this man was is, is bizarre at this point. Yeah, well, I think Europeans knew more about South Africa, especially the Brits, because it was an ex-British colony, then Americans. Yeah, Americans didn't know much about South Africa. I think they know a little bit more now, but in yeah. those days they didn't. Um, but we weren't allowed to, you know, we, we weren't allowed to know anything about him too. Yeah, so he was kept out of the, the textbooks and everything like that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a very interesting upbringing we had. You know, you'd forced, edu- you know, what they taught you. Many things were banned Although you could get things, you know, when you went overseas, but if they caught it at the airport, they'd confiscate it. Um, certain music was banned. Um, there was only, we didn't have TV. Yeah, I'm 63, so I was born in 54. I think TV came in probably the 70s. So we grew up without any TV, and then when it started, it was just one station that was government approved. So it was interesting. I mean, it's good actually growing up without TV, but it's a very interesting. Um, way to grow up but what is what I really appreciate about my upbringing was I was always taught to question authority and that's really helped me in my medical training too so I think part of why I went to where I went to in, in medicine had to do with the way I grew up in South Africa 
because you sort of knew that the system was rotten. You knew it. It wasn't, you know, it was so obvious. And it became very obvious soon after my medical training that the medical system was also rotten. So mm. it was an easy leap for me. No. And uh, I have the same feeling I have in medicine that I had sort of growing up in South Africa when everything is so obviously not right, but everyone's walking around as if it's normal and you know not talking about it or doing that much. Not that no one's doing much, but in medicine I have the same feeling. It's so obviously off base. Not that all medicine's bad, but it's so obviously off base and these doctors are walking around as if there's nothing wrong with it. How I felt about the medical system has how I felt growing up in South Africa, like, it's obviously wrong. I mean, it's just common sense, you know, wake up. When are you going to wake up? Yeah. So, so I actually really appreciate growing up in South Africa for, for many reasons, but, but those are, are two of the reasons. And South Africa is actually a beautiful country, lovely people. So it's, it's, it's you know, I appreciate it. And, yeah. Uh, you, did, um, you did your medical training uh, there. Yeah. So in South Africa, because of apartheid, you either had to choose a black hospital, you know. So our training was was you, you, during medical school. You went to white hospitals. You went to black hospitals. I mean, that was part of the training. As a general rule, the black hospitals were where you, there was a lot of volume, and you sort of you did more practical stuff because they didn't have the staff. And in the white hospitals, that was a bit, bit more sophisticated, more tested. In two completely different types of medicine. Mm. And then after medical school, when I had to do an internship, you could choose to either work in a black hospital or work in a white hospital because they weren't mixed. And I chose to work in the black hospital. I just loved, um, you know, South African blacks are just the, the, the most lovely, warm people. And I just felt very comfortable working. In, and so I actually worked in my internship in Soweto. I mean, I did my internship at Baragwanath Hospital. Me and my wife, we had just got married. We actually lived in, so we lived at the hospital. Right, which is outside of Johannesburg. Just outside right, of Johannesburg. Yeah. It's a, what they call, Soweto sounds for Southwestern Township. They yeah. used to put blacks in these areas and call it a township. Uh, it's just crazy what went on. But anyway, um, so I, that was actually my first exposure to, to non-traditional medicine was working at, at Baragwanath in the black hospitals because when we couldn't help patients, the family used to call in the Sangoma, the traditional healer. And I saw sometimes that the Sangoma would help patients that we couldn't help, not mm. always. but And that was sort of the first thing that piqued my interest because I saw here are people that I can't help and they're bringing these crazy, we used to call them witch doctors, <laughs> And they're actually helping people. It's something so it sort of st started piquing my interest. Not that I, I believed that they even did anything, but it started piquing my interest. And then after I finished my internship, I went to work in the bush um, in, a, in a hospital in the middle of the – in Kwandabele, which is a, a, the homeland. And the same thing happened. I got exposed to traditional healers again, and the same thing happened. I started noticing that they were helping patients that – we weren't helping. So not that I knew anything about African medicine, but it really was interesting to see that something that I was sort of not taught officially, but taught that was nonsense. It wasn't scientific. It's nonsense. It's, it's all, you know, in your head, et cetera, et cetera. I, so, you know, it was great. I, so I, because I was taught to question the system, because I saw 
these these witch doctors helping patients. It was sort of an you know an easy journey for me in a way. Mm. It wasn't um, you know it's not I never have to struggle about it. Yeah, and from there, from from what I remember, we talked about this a long time ago, because you went back into sort of like. It, private practice um, yeah. serving a completely different population after exactly. that. Exactly. So I, I was working in the bush, which was an unbelievable experience. And then I came back to work in a private practice in, in Johannesburg while I was waiting for you know papers to come to America because we had decided we not, didn't want to live in South Africa. And I was working for a very interesting GP in Johannesburg who used to actually see all the detainees, very left-wing GP, a very cool guy. Um, but he used to see not only the detainees, he used to see a lot of the artsy community in South Africa, in Johannesburg, not South Africa. So people were coming in and um, they were coming in with problems that well, I, I couldn't really help. They were coming with different problems that I was training at the hospital. They were coming in with headaches and they couldn't poop and they were tired and things that we don't get taught at, at, at in the hospital because in the hospital you're treating really acutely ill patients. They're coming with these problems, and I couldn't really help them. But then they would say to me, well, I went to the acupuncturist. There was one acupuncturist in Johannesburg, <laughs> and he helped me. And Or I went to the homeopath, and you know what? I took these remedies, and I'm feeling better. So this is another second experience where people I couldn't help were going to see these quacks or what I thought were quacks, homeopaths and acupuncturists. And these patients were saying, well, I got better. So these were all good things for me because it made me question the way I got trained. So I started realizing that, you know, um, well, actually I didn't realize at the time. When I look back, I was probably questioning, but I started realizing how deficient my training was and maybe there are these other modalities and other medicines that could work for people. So, you know, my journey was really, really organic. And then we emigrated and to get a, a license in New York, I had to do three years in an internal medicine re- residency. Mm. And a, a hospital in the South Bronx had sponsored me for a green card because in the, this was 1984. Uh, which was an interesting time to be in the South Bronx. And, well, that's how I got in because American yeah. doctors didn't want to go work right. there. I mean, that was a brutal, that was sort yeah. of like the epidemic in exactly. New York City. Yeah. Which, so I was lucky because uh, I went for an interview and the guy, I didn't even really realize what the South Bronx was. I mean, yeah. what did I know? The guy took a liking to me, and he, he offered me a job with a green card. And, uh, you know, obviously I'm going to take it. Actually, a lawyer had sent me there because she was an ex-South African who knew that this guy liked South African doctors, yeah. and that's how you could get a green card. I could do it that way. I could go to an academic institution and take four years, and it would be much more difficult. So I took the job in the South Bronx, which was an unbelievable experience. As you know, it was a really interesting time. And because I was not American and naive. I didn't even know how to to be scared there. I, I remember I used to take the subway at all hours of the day and night and walk through the area. I didn't even know. I knew no different. I mean, I wouldn't do it now if I knew different. You know <laughs> what I mean? But I was so naive and, and, and nothing ever happened to me. I never, but there was no, I had no fear, not because you just oh, didn't know better. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, uh, I mean, at that time in the South Bronx, that was, was sort a rough of the area. center of yeah. like, the crack epidemic. Yeah. It was very dangerous. A lot of gangs around there yeah. also. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did you feel that there was any similarity yes. in like Soweto and the South big Bronx? Big time. Big yeah. time. So that, so that was quite interesting because 
although I was doing internal medicine, the trauma you know, when I was in the emergency room, we saw sort of similar things. There were more gunshot wounds maybe in the South Bronx and more knife stabbing wounds in Soweto, but it was sort of it was a similar type of environment. So it was actually I adjusted pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Except you didn't have the um, the quote rich doctors to come in when. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he has a, a really funny story. When I first started um, you, in South Africa, as as a sign of respect to the nurses, the, the senior nurses were called sisters. You were a nurse, and then you were a sister, and you used to call them sister. So I'm just started my job. I'm working in the ward, and I'm and most of the nurses were black. And I'm saying sister this and sister that. And one of the Jamaican nurses pulls me aside. She says, "Doc, I know you come from South Africa, and I know in Jamaica we also call the nurses sister, but you, you shouldn't call the nurses your sister." <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you're doing it in the South Bronx? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm calling it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so when I realized, you can't that, see right now, also, but your face is sort of turning beet red. Right uh, I, I mean, it was, you know, but <laughs> it was quite, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but it was, yeah, it was very similar. It was very similar to South Africa, and uh, I mean, I, I had an unbelievable experience at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx. I learned a lot, but I also, you know, what happened was when I um, started my residency, uh, and. Uh, after a couple of weeks, I realized I didn't want to be a doctor in America because when in South Africa, we didn't have the money to do lots of tests. We had to take a good history, examine a patient. Um, there was a lot of communication, relationships. Even in the black hospitals, you, we just couldn't afford to do standard tests. In America, the way we got taught is you, this patient comes in, you do an EKG, you do an X-ray, you take the bloods, you go study up on the case, and the next morning you present it to the professor. So it's like immediately they just become a chart. Exactly. Yeah. There's very little interaction. You don't have to examine them, but there's very little interaction. Huh. And the, st- the part of medicine I really liked was the, the, the relationships. And you learn about people. You, you know, you, it's lovely. Yeah. Um, so I was very disillusioned. And I just I said to my wife, this is not for me. I don't want to be a doctor. And there happened to be an acupuncture clinic about six blocks from the hospital, which was they were doing detox, um, and they were part of the hospital because the, the, the they were doing detox for a lot of the crack and heroin yeah. addicts, and they were making the hospital a lot of money, and it actually was working to a certain extent. They had AA programs and this acupuncture detox in the setting. Before I had left South Africa, the doctor I worked with, you know, and, and I told him I'm really interested in homeopathy. Said he gave me a book called the Barefoot Doctor's Manual. You should go study acupuncture. I really think there's something to this acupuncture. I'd never really thought about acupuncture, but I heard about this acupuncture clinic, so I went to check it out. And this is after a couple of weeks into my residency, and I walked into the room, and it's a room, there are about 40, 50 addicts sitting quietly with needles in their ears. And, uh, you know, you're walking into this burnt-out building, and you looking at the same patients you're seeing in the wards and addicts, and especially these crack addicts, are pretty rough and they're pulling out their IVs. They're very difficult to deal with. You know, they're either withdrawing and they're they're tough. And you walk into this burnt-out building and you see 40, 50 addicts sitting quietly with needles in their ears. And I went, holy shit, this is really interesting. I I want to learn more about this. So I went upstairs to the guy, Mike Smith, who ran the clinic, and I told him who I was and we got chatting. And he was really gracious, and he said, yeah, you can come, you know, 
can spend as much time as you want here. He can learn acupuncture and, you know, we'd love to have you around. And he, he was just lovely to me. He was just so happy there was a doctor mm. interested in, in wanting to learn acupuncture. So during my, my residency, I'd go back and forth between the hospital and the, acup- and the acupuncture clinic and just notice what was going on and started learning a little bit of acupuncture and after a while, you realized, you know, what I realized, and it took maybe a year or two during my residency, but I realized that at the hospital and what Western medicine does is fantastic for acute care and emergency care and when you break a bone and when you need surgery. They're not particularly good at the chronic problems, you know, the same problems I saw at the private practice in Johannesburg. People are tired and they've got irritable bowel syndrome and they've got headaches. Those same patients were going to the acupuncture clinic because they were getting acupuncture for free, basically. Mm. So I saw that these people that we couldn't really help at the hospital were actually being helped at the clinic. So it was really obvious for me to see that, the, you know, I saw it, you know, in 1985, 1986, that the future of medicine would, what I, in those days I thought would be a combination of Western medicine and Eastern medicine. And so... I started, you know, going to the clinic until I finished my residency and spending more and more time there learning acupuncture. And that is the beginning of this journey. But it was the beauty of this was the the way it happened to me. It was never it just sort of happened. It just sort of opened up in front of me. And it was so obvious. It wasn't that I had to. It was never a struggle. Yeah. It was just you kept following threads. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Good Life Project is sponsored by Lexus GX. So have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game? For me, it was this high-end mountain bike. I love the ultralight frame, the suspension, the precision gearing, and I realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential. So I started training harder so I could experience the joy it could give back to me. And it paid off. That bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33 inch all terrain tires and multi terrain select, then unwinding with the available front row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. 
Good Life Project is sponsored by LinkedIn Ads. So as a business-to-business marketer, your needs are unique. B2B buying cycles are long and your customers face incredibly complex decisions. So isn't it time you had a marketing platform built specifically for you? LinkedIn Ads empowers marketers with solutions tailored for B2B. Imagine having direct access to a billion professionals, including 180 million senior executives and 10 million C-level leaders with LinkedIn's powerful targeting tools built for B2B, you can drive serious results. LinkedIn ads generated two to five times higher return on ad spend than other social platforms in the technology space. We've actually tapped the power of LinkedIn ads a number of times ourselves, and the campaigns have been really successful. If you're ready to revolutionize your B2B marketing, try LinkedIn ads with a $100 credit on your next campaign. Terms and conditions apply. Go to linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash goodlifeproject or just click the link in the show notes. Terms and conditions apply. Yeah. And it's interesting too because at that time, you know, acupuncture is, you know, is is known widely now in the U.S., right. but but then not much. It, yeah. it was yeah. this kind of weird, fringy thing that yeah. you know, wasn't accepted or all over the place right. the way it is now. Although I wonder, is it, do you feel that even now, acupuncture is certainly much more part of the mainstream conversation? Do you feel like um, it's accepted? Uh, to a certain extent, you know, I think doctors generally are. They just don't get it. They're so brainwashed to think that, you know, the only way is with drugs or surgery. Um, but even with doctors, I see things changing. I mean, definitely the culture as a as a whole has is, is, is accepted it. I think the medical system always takes the longest to get it. But even then, I think they, they're starting to get it. But they don't really see the sophistication of acupuncture and the sophistication of a lot of a lot of these techniques and modalities, they still sort of look down a little bit on it. It's not science, um, yeah. but um, no, I th- yeah, I think it's changed a lot. In those days, it was crazy, but I will say the the people, especially in the Chinese medicine community, the nutrition community, all the all wherever I dabbled, people sort of brought me in with open arms. The, the people were so gracious that a doctor, they were so happy that a doctor was interested in learning this and they were, you know, just really um, open to teach me whatever I wanted. It was just, it was lovely. I mean, it just, in those days, it's probably changed a little bit now that the alternative community was just so open and, and, and embracing. Yeah. I mean, it must have been interesting too because you were, you were very much sort of like, you must have been a bit of an anomaly then. You know, here's a South African doc working in the South right. Bronx who's also saying, wow, I'm completely open to the fact that there's something else going on here and teach me. So your your exposure um, was really just through years of interacting with this and then learning from the people yeah. Um, yeah. how to bring this into it. What, when it came time to leave Lincoln, what was, what precipitated that and what were, what were you thinking was the so, next step for you? So what happened was I was very lucky. I, because of my training in South Africa, I, because I used to take a really good history and examine people properly, they, the professors sort of realized, they, they respected that and they asked me to be chief resident in my third year. So I'd say, so I said to them, I'll be chief resident if you let me do three months in psychiatry because the acupuncture clinic was attached to the psychiatry department. <laughs> they didn't know I was going to go to the acupuncture clinic. So in my final year, I did three months at the acupuncture clinic 
and really got a good training in acupuncture. And actually, because in, in, in New York in those days, as a medical doctor, you only needed, I think, 300 hours. So when I finished my residency, I'd already able to practice acupuncture. Mm-hmm. And I, a, a friend of mine had introduced me to a doctor who knew another doctor who ran a, a clinic on the Lower East Side. Who was, they were interested in uh, the Batanzas Health Unit. They were interested in alternative medicine. And uh, I met her, and she brought me on to do some acupuncture as well as do general medicine. So I... Um, Started my first job out of my residency was on the Lower East Side, starting to do acupuncture. Which again, the Lower East Side then was. <laughs> so what is now for? it's for those who don't know New York. Like now it's kind of like a very hip kind of you know, like place to be. But back then this was sort of. I don't even know if it would be considered you know a step above in terms of the drug scene and the safety from the South Bronx back then. No, it was it was a step above. It was yeah. very. Latina, Hispanic. Ah, no kidding. But very Hispanic so was, family. This would have been late this 80s? This is 87. Or? Okay, yeah. It was actually... It was starting to... Yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, it wasn't... No, the South Bronx was rough. When yeah. I realized how rough it was, the Lower East Side was poorish, but it wasn't... It was, you know, a lot of... Uh, most of our clients at Batanzas were actually... It was for the Hispanic, local Hispanic community. Mm. And then because I was doing acupuncture... And because um, the clinic took Medicaid, I got a name in the HIV community. So a lot of the HIV guys who wanted to come and get acupuncture as part of, you know, as part of what they were doing started coming to see me. Mm. And then I had gotten friendly um, or I'd met someone, Abdi Asadi, who's a wonderful acupuncturist also in, in New York. And he, I'd met him at Lincoln Hospital and I brought him on there and we started doing this really interesting stuff with AIDS patients. We started teaching them Qigong. We started experimenting with all these different um, modalities with a lot of the AIDS patients who were open to it and then they weren't, they were, you know, they had Medicaid, so they weren't paying for it. So we started doing a lot of, you know, dabbling in nutrition and herbs and Qigong and acupuncture. a lot of fun. I mean, and, you know, the, the lovely patients open, letting us, tried different things so it was very interesting there's like a living laboratory yeah, basically yeah and what's interesting too is because you know that's you're going from um that's that's an acute patient um were you seeing that sort of like the qigong and the acupuncture and the complementary modalities were actually moving the needle well yeah i think there were definitely you know a, a lot of uh, a lot of the patients, or some of the patients we were seeing, didn't want to do the drugs in those days. Uh, were so anti- to, they were, what do they call them? An- anti- uh, antiviral, yeah, retrovirals. Right. This was just the beginning when they were starting the retrovirals. Okay. So um, there were a lot of patients who didn't want to do them. There were patients who would come in and would have side effects. But I think a lot of the, you know, the gay patients were just so open to trying different things. And, you know, we were teaching, teaching them. Now, Abdi had been doing a Tai Chi for many years, so... He was teaching them Qigong and meditation. Um, and then there was a nutritionist at the clinic who, who was fantastic, who we were learning from. So we all sort of got together and started creating this little holistic center. Um, it, it, just, it was great. And once again, all happened organically. We, just, yeah. we were just there and doing it. And uh, a lot of them old hippies. I mean, a lot of when I look at all the my old teachers in, in acupuncture and nutrition who are older than me, you know, I'm 63, so... They were a, not a generation, but you know, five, ten years, ten years old. They're all old hippies. It was interesting. Most of them were hippies who got into the stuff and uh, started 
practicing it. Right. I, I mean, how amazing to have sort of all different traditions come together to have everyone be open to was, to the validation of everybody else's lens. Fan, I it mean, was, it was fantastic. It was really a one wonderful times and. Uh, and we were all exploring. It was new for all of us, yeah. so it was it was interesting. Yeah. So so, you're growing this, um, and it sounds like you're just learning incredibly, and really probably it sounds like you're also really loving who you're collaborating with, and creating this with. What's um, what's happening in your mind in terms of what how you're feeling about medicine and where you want to go with it at that point? Right. Great. Great question. Because what was happening to me then was I struggling to to articulate the different worldviews because, you know, I had a strong Western medicine training, so I saw the body from a Western physician. And then I had this Chinese medicine training, which the language is completely different. You're talking about uh, heat rising and dampness, and the language is completely – you're looking at the body completely differently. And in the beginning, I had to wear two hats. I couldn't. You know, it was either I had to look at it in this lens or in that lens. It is, so that was my struggle um, until I met Jeffrey Bland in 1989, who's the father of functional medicine. And the nutritionist Susan Luck at Batanza said to me, "You got it." It's in '88 or '89. She said, "You got to go listen to this guy. He's brilliant. You'll love him." So he was in New York talking. I went to hear him speak. And uh, talk about an aha experience because he was actually articulating Chinese medicine from a Western perspective. He had taken the philosophy of Chinese medicine about improving function and creating balance. And he was using the, the Western biochemistry and physiology and talking, it, talking the Western medicine language, but from a Chinese perspective. And it was such a hallelujah for me to mm. hear this guy you know, articulate what I'd been struggling to try put together. So when I heard Jeff Bland talk, that was that was it for me because, that, you know, to to actually put it together for me like that because that was that's that was what I was struggling with for those couple of years trying to put it together, and he had put it together. Yeah. So he was a mind opener for me, and that's a. After I met Jeff, everything became much easier for me. You know, I got much clearer and I was able to sort of really put these things together. Yeah, it's like he gave you new language. Yeah. Did you end up studying or working with him? Yeah, so I've known Jeff since then and every time he's in New York and I've become quite friendly with him. So, yeah, and then then the whole functional medicine movement sort of grew in the sort of 90s. So I was sort of part of that. So, yeah, I've been friendly with Jeff for, for ages. And then I was also very lucky to have an unbelievable yoga teacher who sort of helped me sort of understand where yoga fits in. You know, Lindsay Clennell is one of the senior Iyengar teachers. He's just a brilliant, he's like a mentor to me on every level. Just a brilliant guy. And he sort of helped me articulate or understand where yoga fits in and the fascia. And because he sees he just also has a really good understanding of the human condition in general. But I started fitting in acupuncture and yoga and the fascia because you don't learn anything about the fascia in functional medicine or in Western medicine. So, you know, and and then I had fantastic Chinese medicine teachers. So I was just very, very blessed to have these amazing teachers 
who I've, you know, ended up becoming friendly with, who are just all these lovely, beautiful older guys who are so open to teaching. Mm. You said a number number of times now that you feel very blessed to have had this person or this person, this person. And I guess one of the things that I wonder is, um, is it that, because it seems like you just at every turn, you were finding someone else with another piece of the puzzle for you. Exactly, yeah. You know, and at the same time, how many other people were bumping into these same potential teachers who weren't open to sort of stepping into that space of beginner's mind and validating what they had to offer? It, you know, is the blessing to a certain extent that even though you were established, you were a physician, you were well-trained, um, you continue to hold yourself open to the possibility that there was so much more that you didn't know and, and accepted almost anybody as a teacher? Yeah, could be. I mean, I, um, yeah, I think I was so thirsty for for knowledge and trying to put it all together because I knew what I had learned was limited. And then you're seeing a patient and you just, something's happening and the way you're taught to understand it just doesn't jive um so you know in those days i'm jaded now but in those (laughs) days i was just so open to learning you know just trying to discover and you know i was finding myself i was finding um you know what works what helps my patients i I was in such an interesting phase of my life um uh just to say you know it's very exciting i was just so caught up in it yeah. So you started to go um, down the functional medicine yeah, route. So hole, I went, yeah. So I went. Yeah. So you stayed. <laughs> so, so I went down the functional medicine path, but I was bringing in Chinese medicine yeah. and the yoga and then the ek- all of the stuff together. And because right, I don't think of you as a classic functional. No, medicine no, no, guy. no. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. But I think as you know, I've had so many talks with Jeff about this because even how the functional medicine movement started you know they had to create an operating system if they wanted to teach doctors same in yoga it's the same you've got to create a system to teach the next generation or to teach teachers or doctors so they had to create an operating system but i think any of the real um, wise functional medicine doctors are way beyond functional functional medicine is a system to work within but they get that there's much more but you need that system to train the to train people. Yeah. So we, we should also probably just for those listening who've never heard the phrase functional medicine. Okay. What uh, is it? Thir- yeah, like a sixty okay. second. What is this? Well, functional medicine is uh, is to me anyway the, the the true combination of of Western medicine and and um, Eastern medicine. It takes the language of Western medicine and the biochemistry and the physiology and it uses the language of Chinese medicine of how do we improve function, how do we create balance, because in Western medicine we don't think like that. So functional medicine is really, well now if we, we look at it, is, is how do you look for the underlying cause of some dysfunction? Because in Western medicine, if you have a symptom, um, there's some underlying problem that's causing the symptom. But in Western medicine, we go for that symptom. Like if you're driving your car and the oil light goes on, you put a band-aid over the, over the symptom. So the symptom becomes a problem that you need to suppress. Functional medicine, we're seeing the symptom as 
as a, a symptom of some underlying disorder and you need to try to work out what that underlying disorder is and ultimately what the cause of that is. So functional medicine is a, a system that helps us try work out what that underlying cause of the problem is. Yeah, it, it's been in my experience, and tell me if this is wrong also, from the outside looking in, it's also been my experience that, you know, functional medicine feels more whole, it, it treats the body and the mind as an integrated feedback sure. mechanism, as an integrated system, rather than sort of like um, points of parts. inflammation. Sure. So in Western medicine, we divide everything into different body parts. Even in the hospital, you have the rheumatology department and the cardiology department. The body's divided into different parts. In holistic medicine, integrated medicine, functional medicine as well, everything's connected. It's this web. So what goes on in your gut is going to affect your moods. Um, if you have joint pains, it's actually also often coming from your gut. So there's, there's this web that connects everything. And you've got to try to sort out, you know, you know, what's influencing this web. But yes, it's more holistic. It's not. There's no. Yes, it's not. Body parts aren't broken down into to separate parts. Everything works together. Right. It's sort of like if you know you come in and something's hurt or, or bothering you or causing pain, that you know, a functional medicine doc is going to look at everything that's going exactly. on and ask you questions where you're probably going to be like. No, 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 doc. You know, like I came to you because I have pain here. Like, right. yeah, I don't need to tell you. Did have you had that it response? Happens, to, no, it happens all the time. Yeah, but I, w w what I will say is, in these days, people are so much more sophisticated. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the last five to ten years, it's so interesting what's happening. Um, patients are so much more sophisticated and have a much better understanding of what's going on. Yeah. So so interesting. So. You take med medicine and then you sort of explore this world of functional medicine. But like you said, then the the docs have been doing this for a while. It, you start to go beyond. You start to integrate all different modalities. Um, and it seems like what you're doing now, you know, eventually you moved on and you developed your own wellness center um, where people literally travel from around the world to come and see you. Do you find that um, it seems like one of the big things that's going on these days um, is that People are walking around with, quote, nonspecific pain, with, with diseases and illnesses and suffering um, that increasingly it's not this acute thing, although it may evolve yeah. to be acute, but it's really having an impact on quality of life. And it feels like this is the area, the gray zone that very often sort of the traditional approach to medicine just kind of says, we're not sure, but what you're, the work you're doing is where you sort of step in and start exactly. to... Exactly. So this is what we call these people, the walking wounded or the worried well. Mm. They're not sick enough to be in a hospital. Their blood tests may not even be abnormal, um, but they're suffering. And so this is an area that Western medicine is particularly weak for, and this is an area that what I do and functional medicine in general is particularly good for. And I'd say, um, and maybe this is the type of patient that's attracted to me, a lot of, I'd say, at least 60% of people I see, the problem starts in the gut. Mm. And what is, what's very interesting, in Chinese medicine, you learn that the gut is a center. And when the gut is off, everything goes off. I mean, you go, I got taught early on that if you don't know what's going on, treat the gut. So in the elements, in the five elements, the gut is an earth element, um, and I always remember my Chinese medicine teachers 
talking about the gut as a center and um, treating the gut. And I remember studying with, uh, uh, when I was at the acupuncture school here in New York, uh, Mark Seam School, there was a guy, Simon Mills, a herbalist from England who ran the, ran the herbal school, he used to come and teach us. And he used to always say, in all traditions, if you don't know what to do, they teach you, you treat the gut first. Mm. And what we're finding out now with the latest science and what we do in functional medicine, a lot of the times you're treating the gut, the microbiome and leaky gut and as a source of problems. And with the way we're eating and with all the antibiotics in the food and all the GMOs, we're damaging our microbiome and our gut. So it's very interesting, this full circle and how we're now understanding it from a sort of Western scientific perspective, what a lot of cultures have sort of, in a way, have spoken about for centuries. Yeah, and what's so interesting, too, is that um, it was probably in the early days when you would, you know, going back 15 years now, um, I rem- I think you may have been the person that introduced me to the phrase leaky gut a long, long, long time ago. And it was this weird thing, like, what? <laughs> and now it's it's it's, you know, not only accepted to a large extent, but yeah. it's being studied fiercely and yeah. now now we have a fancier name you know it's it's the microbiome instead of the gut and yeah. and um and you're you know people are sequencing the dna of the microbiota and it's it's, it's, it's this fierce field of study yeah it's like the hottest area of research in western medicine is this microbiome i'm intrigued i love it good life project is sponsored by lexus gx so have you ever owned something that inspired you to just up your game for me it was this high-end mountain bike i love the ultralight frame the suspension the precision gearing and i realized it deserved to be ridden to its full potential so i started training harder so i could experience the joy it could give back to me and it paid off that bike helped me discover just new levels of performance and straight up joy when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Imagine tackling rugged landscapes with the available 33-inch all-terrain tires and multi-terrain select, then unwinding with the available front-row massaging seats. This is a vehicle that inspires you to go further to live up to its full potential. So why settle? Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. But, you know, the problem with the, with the Western perspective, they're so narrow. They can't see the – they don't see the big picture. They're always trying to study a small part of this big part. And that's still wonderful. I think it's wonderful that they're doing the studies. Um, but clinically, it's not necessarily helping the patients yet. Mm. Um, for instance, fecal transplants. It's always interesting to talk about, which I think <laughs> should be 
much more ready, readily available. They're not expensive, and they could be helping a lot of patients. It's a really easy way to get you know billions and billions of bacteria into someone. Otherwise, you know, trillions of bacteria actually. So it's hard to get it through, and different strains. It's hard to get it with probiotics. I mean, you can you know probiotics are helpful. But if someone has a really screwed up microbiome, I mean, a fecal transplant is, is fantastic. I mean, it, you can't even get one done in, in, in America unless you've had uh, infections with, with the C. diff, which is an organism, for three times. So it's just it's an interesting thing that something that they sort of know is effective, you know, I'm not sure why they're waiting. I, I, my, my sense is... Um just the idea of you know the, those two poop, words poop in right. a poop in a pill right I poop in it, a yeah. pill is just so uh, yeah like socially just bizarre and weird but um but I love I, it I mean here's something that could be cheap and effective I mean you don't have to pay hundreds or thousands of dollars for a drug it's not going to you know if it's done properly and checked and it's not going to necessarily harm you I mean I you see I've always been intrigued by sort of free or cheap, simple treatments that can, you know, it would be, you know, we have such an expensive medical system. So I I think fecal transplants are going to be, you know, much more, much more relevant in the next couple of years because, you know, I'll probably see a couple of people a week who, are, who I think would do well with a fecal transplant, but I have nowhere to send them. Yeah. I mean, some go to London, but it's, it's hard to get them. It's... From what I remember, such a complete neophyte with this, but I remember actually hearing or reading a report that said that for certain conditions, it's almost 100% cure rate yeah. when everything else fails. Is, is ulcerative colitis one of those, well, or was well, it something it else? It was I for C. diff when, when C. someone diff? has okay. this infection, which is really difficult right. to which treat. Which I've actually had in the past and is horrendous. Yeah. yeah. So the, the only way they'll do it here in the States, although it's... I think slowly changing is you have to have C. diff three times before they'll actually... Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but, you know, it's helping for a lot of autoimmune problems, rheumatoid arthritis, all sorts of things that they are finding it's helping for because it's helping the gut, and the gut is a source of the problem. Right. What's actually going... How is it a source of the problem? Is it its relationship with inflammation? Is it something sure. else? Okay, or? so this is uh, this is great to understand. So the gut... The lining of the gut is just one cell thick for most of it. One cell thick. So it's much, much thinner than your skin. And that's your protective barrier against a lot of the external world. All the food you're eating, you know, before you poop it out, it's, it's your body, the, the barrier between the food and everything you're putting into your mouth, the barrier is one cell thick for a lot of it between that food and, and your body. So when that gets damaged... When the cells aren't locked in properly, you get either food byproducts of food particles going through, toxins going through. They leak through. The, that's why it's called leaky gut. It goes through this this permeable wall and into your bloodstream, and then it becomes systemic because the blood takes it to the liver, and then it goes to your heart and goes to the rest of your body. So a lot of systemic inflammation, a lot of skin problems are actually the problems are in the gut. So. I believe uh, probably the biggest source of inflammation is is a gut problem. So you have the, so the two aspects of the gut you need to understand is this leaky gut, and when the the lining gets damaged or perforated, you have these toxins and chemicals and food byproducts going through into your system. And the other big aspect of the gut is this microbiome, which is this collection 
of all these bacteria in your gut. So we've all been taught bacteria are bad, but we have trillions and trillions of bacteria in your gut, most of which are actually good for you. And when you get an imbalance, when you have too many bad guys as opposed to good guys, um, you you create uh, a problem which then will actually cause a leaky gut. And because of that, you once again get these toxins and particles going through. And the way we eat, you know, all the, the sugary foods, the you know, a lot of the processed foods, the antibiotics in our foods, the GMOs, um, GMOs because they sprayed with the, probably because they sprayed with glyphosate, which is an herbicide, which is also a registered antibiotic. So a lot of the foods that people are just eating without realizing are actually, you know, affecting their balance of good and bad bacteria, then damaging their gut, and then you have these problems going through the gut wall and becoming systemic problems. And I'd say at least 60-70% of patients I see who come in with autoimmune problems or arthritis or skin problems or even fatigue, all sorts of problems, often even anxiety and depression, the problem is in the gut. And you treat the gut and people aren't anxious anymore. You treat the gut and their autoimmune problems get better. So it's really interesting. Okay, I want I want to deconstruct that last okay. part especially because I think when most people listen to this, they can bridge the gap between, okay, so I get it. You know, the gut is a cell thick in certain points. It's easy to become permeable. Um, stuff can pass through, go into your bloodstream and cause inflammation because then it's just kind of floating all around your body. And that causes pain, illness, all right. sorts of other stuff. But that last bit, which I know there's been some really interesting research on over the last few years, is that you know, around your the state of your microbiome actually affecting the state of your mind. Okay. I think that's a bigger jump for people to make. Okay, so this is really easy to explain. So the, the first thing is the, the, the gut is also called the second brain. All the chemicals made in your brain, all the neurotransmitter, the serotonin, which is the, the antidepressant um, neurotransmitter. There's more serotonin actually made in your gut than made in your brain. So all those chemicals that we, we associate with moods and anxiety and depression that are made in your brain are actually made in your gut too. That's why the gut is called the second brain. And there's a direct highway between the gut. There's a physical highway between the gut and the brain. It's called the vagus nerve. So a lot of these chemicals are either going through the bloodstream to the brain or going through this highway um, from your gut to your brain. So gut feelings are real. So a lot of these chemicals that could be made in your gut going straight to your brain. Mm. So, I mean, it's very complicated. I'm simplifying it. Yeah. But, but, but there is a direct connection. And so I'd say a lot of mood problems that I see or people come in anxious and you treat their gut, or people come in depressed. Now, these are complicated issues. I'm not saying it's all the gut. But often when you treat the gut, a lot of these issues get better. I mean, it's, you know, and this is how I've always learned when I see something happening, you know, because I'm a good observer. One of the things I do is listen and observe. When you see something happening all the time, you try, you're always trying to work out why it's happening, which has happened long ago. Now we're sort of understanding why all these weird things that never used to make sense that you see clinically are actually happening. And we actually can understand why they're happening. So it's very exciting. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, you know, because I know if I'm stressed out, 
I feel that in my gut. Yes, you know, it, it goes both ways. Um, so right, always, exactly. Right, and yes. that made sense to me, but I, I never really thought about it going the it's other both way ways, too. exactly. Um, it's fascinating. It's, it's wild. It, it's it totally really wild. Is. In fact, <laughs> there are more and more psychiatrists because I, you know, I sort of read a lot and post a lot on my Facebook, and there, there are more and more psychiatrists are, are saying people should not get anti-anxiety drugs or antidepressant drugs before they treat their guts. Huh. So even the psychiatrists are getting it. Right. It's interesting. Um, how do you, I guess, you know, one big lingering question is if, you're, if your microbiome, if your gut is off, if you know, it's not right. in balance, if it's not healthy and positive, um, beyond, uh, you know, a fecal transplant, poop and a pill, right. <laughs> um, is you know, we hear probiotics thrown around. Is that the primary way to do it? Is it food? Is it lifestyle? What's all the, the above? Yeah, because what's this is also really interesting, and this is why um, I think uh, this holistic perspective is so helpful. We know that exercise affects your microbiome. We know mm. that stress, sleep, all these factors, food. It's, you know, everything. You know, everything seems to work together. So um, how do you treat it? You know, first of all, unfortunately, there's no real accurate testing for this. You know, sometimes you can pick up a parasite, um, but the testing at the moment, although there are more and more companies coming out, you know, at Revitalize, I think they had U-Biome. Right. There are more and more of these companies coming out with these kits that are testing the microbiome. I think it's very early, and I think that's for the future, but it, I don't think there's a company that really has it down well yet. It's just a matter of time. So theoretically, in time, we'll be able to test someone's poop and see, oh, you don't have enough of this bacteria, you have too many of these guys, and you can target the treatment. At the moment, we're sort of guessing. So you guess by giving some different strains of good bacteria, the probiotic. I use a lot of herbal antibiotics. I use mm -hmm. herbs. I have a wonderful formula that often treats common bad guys. We often give antifungals, herbs, or sometimes even drugs, which kill, fun you know, sometimes yeast is one of those bad guys that can overgrow. So you're sort of killing the bad guys, giving the good guys, and changing people's diets so that they don't affect the microbiome so much. You often encourage fermented foods because that's a good source of, of probiotics. You... you you recommend foods that feed the good bacteria. So I always tell people eat stalks and stems because the fiber is what you don't digest properly and that's what feeds the good bacteria too. So those are the things you do clinically and you see how people respond because we, we don't really have great tests at the moment to, 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 to delineate exactly how each person gets treated. But yeah. I, that's where it's going. Yeah, it's so uh, it's so it's fascinating. It's yeah. fascinating. I think it's hopeful too. You know, Very hopeful. My sense is that so many people who've been walking around and maybe have been told for years, uh, deal yeah. with it. You know, take some, exactly. you know, NSAIDs. Take whatever it is, and you're getting older. You yeah. know, just this happens when you get older. You know, it seems like we're we're just starting to turn a corner where. Maybe that's not going to be the answer in the very near yeah. future for most people. So, you know, I, 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 this is it's going to sound like a plug, and in a way it's a plug, but what, what I've done is I created this cleanse, which actually is not a traditional cleanse, but it cleans out the gut. So I created this, so I started doing this in my office, where I used to give these herbs that clean out the gut, probiotics, and then put people on a diet which 
took out all the pro-inflammatory foods and actually had people have shakes which had nutrients to help the liver. And I saw how well it works in my office. And then I started putting it online without even seeing patients. And the results have been unbelievable. So it's just completely people don't even, I don't even have to know them. They just try to do this for two weeks. You know, they change their diet, stop sugar, stop the grains, mm. take this, the pills in there which are herbal antibiotics, often take probiotics too. And it's unbelievable how different so many people feel. You know, we get letters. It's incredible. So it's actually not that difficult to yeah. to change, you know. And, and as you said, so many people are walking around suffering unnecessarily and it's not you know i've trained a lot of health coaches now because i work closely with my health coaches and i'm more confident with my if if i had a patient or some people call and there was a choice to see a health coach with certain problems or a doctor to me it's not even a choice because doctors are not are missing a whole piece of the pie here. it's like mm. you know the metaphor people use you know it's no use looking for your keys just under the light i find a lot of doctors you know they're looking under where the light's shining, but the keys are somewhere in the dark. So they're only looking in that one area, and, and they're missing the, the point. And especially with these gastrointestinal problems or a lot of these microbiome-related problems. Mm. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So as, you, um, as you're kind of looking at where you are now and looking forward... What's really exciting? Like, where is your your you're one of the most curious people I know. Um, so you're constantly poking around. Yeah. What's what's the burning question for you right now? Is there a place where you're just deeply fascinated? Well, definitely the microbiome. Yeah. Um, but I'm fascinated with this whole how wellness is permeating the culture and what's being called wellness and that and what's healthy and and, that. and I um, want to get more involved with sort of getting the message out in a responsible way to audiences that I would never touch with what I do, you know, but some, what I do may be a little bit too different. So I'm intrigued by how can we start incorporating all these wonderful things I've learned and you've learned over the years. Why isn't everyone doing it? This just should be, everyone should be doing it. It's like <laughs> they're no-brainers. So I'm sort of really interested in that part of how do you get this message out in different ways to different constituencies. Yeah, which is kind of the perfect place to come full circle also because um, a lot of what you're doing is sort of leading edge. And at the same time, it's not accessible yeah, to exactly. a lot of populations, especially if we come full circle to kind of like back where you started. Right. Talk to me about that a little right, bit. No, I think that's a big issue. So I struggle with that because what I do is for very upper class. I mean, you know, it's not, it's, it's elitist and it shouldn't be. And a lot of the stuff we're teaching people is how to eat more healthily, how to meditate, going to yoga, th things that don't cost money. So, yeah, I, this is what I think about a lot. How can we actually get this message out to to populations that either can't afford it or wouldn't know much about it? And I think it's possible. I think there's always a cultural aspect to it. So you have to, you know, and I learned that from working in South Africa and saw how important the cultural aspect was. I learned that working in the Hispanic community on the Lower East Side. You can, you can bring it into to, 
different populations, but I think you you need to be very sensitive to the culture. We started something in South Africa, for instance. Um, I still work closely with a non-profit in South Africa called the Ubuntu Fund. And um, I had been teaching at a spa in Mexico called Rancho La Puerta. And they have this big organic garden. And when I went back to South Africa and I saw what was going on, I said, we can grow gardens here for the kids and get them healthy food. So we started that. And and it, it wasn't me. I mean, it was my idea and you know, I helped get the funding. But the, the young guy, who, the young American guy started Ubuntu and his team were so sensitive of the culture and how to introduce it. And I saw how affected it was. They had complete buy-in from the, you know, the, the leaders of the community. And it's just part, you know, for them it was such an easy sell because it, the way they got it into the community was was explaining and showing how this is how it's always been. And mm-hmm. so I think there are ways of doing it. And I think you need to do it in different ways, in different places, and there are always different entry points. Some people come into it from food. Some people come into it from meditation or exercise. So, you know, that's where sort of my head's going at the moment. What are all these entry points? Mm. How do you touch different cultures? And, and by bringing them into the wellness space, because a lot of it, you know, a lot of what, you know, we do the same thing. A lot, a lot of this is just common sense. It's mm. not... You know, we, we don't have to even teach them about the microbiome per se. A lot of ways to get healthy are just, you know, right, watch. Like more plants, move e- your body, exactly. meditate. Yeah. So it's it, like, how, you know, how do you get, what are the entry points for people? How do you get them yeah. in? And how do you, and this is, I think, a very important part. If people have a subjective experience of wellness, that's how you hook them. That's why yoga is so popular. That's why, you know, you can get, people turn on to exercise, acupuncture. You know, if you can get people to have a subjective experience of wellness soon, that's what's going to really hook them. It's not an intellectual thing. So, um, you know, this is sort of where um, part of what I think about now is how do, you know, what are these entry points and how do you get different people, different populations into the wellness space how, how does wellness become just a normal part of our culture, which it should be? Yeah, and um, that will probably be a, a quest that takes you through <laughs> for yeah. as long as you want to. But it's for, exciting. For because, yeah. yeah, it's exciting because people are getting it, you know, and, and our default choices are so unhealthy. This is a problem. Yeah. You know, like for what we have to label food organic because what normal food now is full of pesticides but food was always organic it wasn't labeled organic it was you know people used to move their bodies people the the things that we used to do you know are now we have to bring back so our default choices in food in in the way we live our lives sleep everything is are so um abnormal we have to make the default choices normal it's like we have to train them back into our lives exactly so that they become the new default yeah yeah um no, that makes a lot of sense. Well, you and I could jam for, I think, probably a couple more sessions. Yeah. And maybe we'll have it's you back great. at some point. Yeah, I'd love to. I want to yeah. come full circle. Yeah. This, or the name of this is Good Life Project. So yeah. if I offer that phrase out to you, to live a good life, what comes up? What does it mean to you? I think to have meaning, to, ha- to be passionate about what you do. When I look at what makes me happy, what, um, 
what drives me and, and, and I see my patients too. When people have meaning, when they have passion, when people give back, it's a, you know, this whole concept Ubuntu, I work with Ubuntu Fund in South Africa. Ubuntu, what makes us human is the humanity we show each other. All these intangible aspects of life have, have powerful healing qualities. So, um, you know, yes, I think eating well is important. I think moving your body is important. Watching where your mind goes is important, how you sleep. But I think these intangibles, this, um, the giving back the passion, the meaning, I think people really thrive on, on, on these things. And, uh, and it's, it's not, I'm not saying it's hard. It's harder in our culture because we're driven by so many unhealthy ways of living. But I think if you find that, life becomes much easier. So the, to me, the good life is when there's meaning in your life, when you're giving back, when there's community. Community is one of those things which is such a powerful force. In every culture, community has always been important. And we, especially in New York, you tend to lose that a lot. Community isn't as important. So finding your tribe, also important. Mm. So yeah. to me, that's the good life. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If the stories and ideas in any way moved you, I would so appreciate if you would take just a few extra seconds for two quick things. One, if it's touched you in some way, if there's some idea or moment in the story or in the conversation that you really feel like you would share with somebody else, that it would make a difference in somebody else's life. Take a moment and whatever app you're using, just share this episode with somebody who you think it'll make a difference for. Email it if that's the easiest thing, whatever is easiest for you. And then, of course, if you're compelled, subscribe so that you can stay a part of this continuing experience. My greatest hope with this podcast is not just to produce moments um, and share stories and ideas that impact one person listening, but to let it create a conversation, to let it serve as a catalyst for the elevation of all of us together, collectively, because that's how we rise. When stories and ideas become conversations that lead to action, that's when real change happens. And I would love to invite you to participate on that level. Thank you so much, as always, for your intention, for your attention, for your heart. And um, I wish you only the best. I'm Jonathan Fields, signing off for Good Life Project.